Hey, it's Ash here. The last few weeks we've been trying something out and we wanted to share it with you today as a bonus episode. We recently got together with two of our favorite previous guests, Daniela Greenwood and Maury Voicey Barlin, to chat about the week's episode on delivering culturally appropriate care. If you haven't heard that episode yet, it's the previous one in the feed, but this conversation stands alone as well. As you'll hear, it was a bit of a change of pace from our regular conversations, but super interesting and a lot of fun. We'd love to know what you think of it. You can let us know on social media or via email through acepodcast at silveradventures.com.au. Anyway, enjoy. Hello, I'm here with Daniela Greenwood. And I'm here with Maury Voicey Balan. And I got that right? You sure do. And um, well pronounced. And uh, it's very appropriate on this um, topic here. Listening to the podcast raised a lot of questions for me. And I realised, mm-hmm. Daniela, that I really... I'm really stumped by how what the resolution is here because I think there's a lot to dig into. What's your experience with people who don't speak English living in residential aged care? Look, good question. It's the same as my experience with um, the broader Australian community. We're a naturally, <laughs> true, we're a naturally diverse country, and a lot of times we work it out together. I mean, a lot of the people in my local shops um, speak very little English. We know each other really Mm -hmm. well. We've kind of got some, we wave, we've got some nonverbal cues. That's kind of what it's like to live in inner Melbourne. And I think um, what I, 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 what I really took away from that podcast in terms of um, cultural diversity and aging is that the danger of making it kind of like an add-on or like like somehow older people are going to age as one homogenous group of white English speaking kind of people and look let's face it Maury that's what the system is set up for um, every aspect of it. And isn't this ironic that Considering the um, the amount of diver- the diverse range of people that we have from different cultures and different practices actually working in aged care, this is remarkable that we're not yeah, reflecting yeah. that. You know, in that stat, what about one third staff and one third, like one third of everybody either working in, living in, or visiting come from a non English speaking background, and yet the system including like the information to navigate the system is really, and, and even the, the initial assessments. But you know what? I'm going to add another stat to that again. Uh-oh. So one-third staff, <laughs> non-English speaking background, one-third workforce, and at least 70% of people living in, say, um, a residential aged care context are living with a cognitive disability. So you've wow. got this whole system set up that's, totally ableist and and set up for kind of really set up for one kind of language I believe even though there's these fantastic resources what I loved Maury is um is it was Lisa wasn't it Lisa who who really brought this back to human rights and spoke about Mm. just that basic right to communicate to be understood and to be able to voice your preferences and feedback um, in the in the original Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and of course, that's now feeding into the New Age Care Act, which we now know is going to be really heavily drawing on the Convention on Rights for Persons with Disabilities, which has which really focuses on the right to communicate in you know and be and be understood. And that is some. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering how we're travelling and tracking with that too, Daniela. I think that um, 
one of the things that I took away from that was, in fact, you know, thinking about communication. And when we think about dementia, all the dementias and the, the you know, the loss uh, or, or not understanding the world in the way we once did, um, we've also got on top of this, we've got language that nobody speaks around us. And, I, you know, I've got lots of, um, lots of instances, you know, that I can think about of people I've interacted with who, who, didn't know, who no longer spoke English. I guess I was interested in some of your um, experiences uh, working with people that no longer spoke English or maybe reverted to their mother tongue, which is a real um, dilemma for the family uh, at times when they don't speak the mother tongue as they've lived in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I was on the floor working in a, a 38, um, a 38 sweep dementia specific area for, for about five years. And um, frequently, we'd have people coming in who um, were speaking in their native language, but totally understood um, when we spoke to them. So the frustration for them was when they were speaking, are people ignoring me? Why aren't they listening to me? Mm. Because they, they perceived that they were speaking in a language that everyone could understand and so therefore felt really disrespected. And, 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 and Professor Ibrahim tells a really terrifying story. I'm glad you brought this up in terms of that, that crossroad of cognitive disability and, um, and language barrier. He speaks about one woman who was incarcerated in a dementia-specific um, aged care home and she didn't have dementia. She just oh. couldn't speak the language. And, of course, the more she protested, oh. they, they interpreted that as behaviours, as symptoms of dementia. Oh, no. So, you know, then there's the increased risk of, let's face it, the increased risk of death because if you're going to drug people because of their behaviours, um, there's, so there's that. I mean, that was a really scary story. And she, she managed to get in contact with Monash. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but it does feed into another thing from the podcast, just the vital importance of the community visitors scheme that that oh, yeah. is well funded but also that that speaks to the obligation on the broader community you can ask for government services all you want but we still need volunteers who see it as their obligation as citizens to volunteer for programs like that now this is interesting too because right now what we're looking at with the the covid curtain is that we don't have volunteers coming into residential aged care at present. And this is a, is a real, um, I think, you know, we're really struggling here as we know that volunteers have been pulled just until we work out what's happening, creatives and whatnot. Um, and it does come back to families. But, you know, if I could just quickly share a story with you, mm. Daniela, I, I met a woman and, and it's hard to talk about people without using names, but I'll, yeah. I'll call her Minna. Minna had come into a service that I was working at and her, she had reverted to her mother tongue of German and her loving husband, who was from New Zealand, didn't never learnt German because Minna's English was impeccable. And so he never learnt to speak German. And the tragedy was, was that they could no longer communicate. She would wow. speak to him and, as you said, was assuming, why aren't you answering? And he couldn't communicate with her anymore. And the isolation that this created and, and, and is, is a real, well, we know where that leads. We know the slippery yeah, slope yeah, to, to yeah. depression and, of course, death. Um, that, and that, that was a that tragedy. That is a tragedy. Imagine how you would feel. Um, I think it was, again, Lisa who said, just just put yourself in that position that you're in this place and you're the only one who speaks a particular language. I mean, 
there's so many risks to that, not not even beyond social isolation, just around basic communication of pain, of yeah. preferences, of and and then I want to talk- go to the toilet. Yeah, simple basic you know, things. Really basic. And you can't get an interpreter in as as they said, you know, if you want to I love that moment. I, I can't remember who said it, but but it was you can't get an interpreter in when you want a cup of tea. True, and I love that you brought that up uh, because that now gets into the um, area that is my passion, really uh-huh. practical steps that aged care can do, both home care and residential uh-huh. aged care, um, is consistency. Consistency in the people who support people for a whole range of reasons, but, of course, language is one of those reasons. And uh-huh. in an ideal world, first of all, if you ever did want to have that kind of targeted recruitment that they were talking about, you have to have consistent staff assignment. That's a no-brainer. You can't have all these different ah. people coming through. And that, and you could never achieve that with that traditional rotating roster. And and I think that even if you couldn't and you weren't able to match language every time, just that consistency would be really powerful in that relationship where people just worked out how, how each other communicated and worked out how they, um, you know, the, the staff member could really get to understand the nuances of that person's unique verbal expressions of choice and pain. The, the consistency is the key for the whole range of reasons. And I believe with interpreters too, this year I did a project in a home where I spoke to every single resident. So my first stipulation was I need to know all the different languages here mm-hmm. and then I need a commitment. I used Polaron languages who I really like because their interpreters have worked in aged care and they're really good at, um, at just they do a lot of research around each person. So right. I, I made sure that the company invested in that that was just a non-negotiable for me. It wasn't an add-on. It was just, of course, it's what you do. And there was one Chinese woman living there, so we had an interpreter come in just for one woman. There was Greek, um, Italian, and that's where I didn't involve family. I didn't even have them in the room because I wanted to find out something from the resident, and I certainly didn't want to ask family to be the interpreters. That, you know, and that's interesting because in my experience, and I'm sure you've met the same, there are times when family members with the best of intentions, usually, often answer for um, our elder and don't allow the elder to express what it is that they really genuinely feel or, or, or think. Yeah, um, yeah. Maury, have you worked with people kind of in, in later stage dementia that maybe don't use language that other people yeah. might have kind of written off and thought, well, they don't know oh. you, they don't... Mm, yes, yeah. yeah, and 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 I worked at a, a multicultural um, focused facility here in Newcastle for a long time, and and there was a number of people that no longer spoke English, and there was a Vietnamese woman that I recall, and um, you know, and and the thing is, people speak louder, and we do this outside of aged care, <laughs> you know, they speak louder because they will understand better if you talk louder, <laughs> and of course, that's a signal that there's something wrong. You know, when someone starts speaking to you really slowly and clearly, you go, hello, I've been in an accident. It's, a, it's an <laughs> alarm, you know, and off goes the amygdala. And, and so, you know, like bringing in a, a blanket, a blue dyed blanket from the Hmong tribe that I held up and brought, you should have seen her when she saw it. She yeah. grabbed it and wrapped it around herself. Little did I know that I'd pressed a major button, but she held it and, 
And so it's it's just understanding that there is more than just language, I think, as well. There are triggers that we uh, connect with. And she connected with this beautiful hand-woven blanket that I had brought back from Vietnam That's 15 so years ago. That's so interesting you should say that because I was just reading a paper yesterday about a study done around helping pe- people objects that help people transition into aged care. And it could be blankets and things like that or things that they create that help kind of weave literally those kind of narrative threads from my life outside of aged care into into aged care. Um, Those those objects that have meaning that we've all got them. I couldn't, I, oh. I couldn't agree more. I, I wanted to talk about one thing. I, um, Hang on, I'll quickly, on. just quickly, I'm going to show you something. Yeah. Our, our listeners won't hear this. Did I show you this object of meaning to me? Look, I'll just oh. show you. Oh, yes, your McDonald's <laughs> name tag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so pull doesn't, that one out when you're looking after me in residential aged care, please, Daniela. Now, sorry, I interrupted single- you. I was going to say, doesn't every single artist own a McDonald's staff name tag? I'm kidding, Murray. I'm kidding. I, I, I'd like to see yours then. I bet you're Henny, you're Henny Penny, aren't you? Or no, no. I worked um, at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Aha! I knew it. I knew it. I was it. the chip girl. I've still got, mm. I've still got scars to prove it. But I, I'm going to talk about, everyone's talking about what providers should do and stuff. I think the one thing I wanted to cover was the whole system is not set up to accommodate the natural diversity in Australia. And I loved it when Lisa said, if even one person living there speaks another language, every single accommodation needs to be made for that one citizen. And that is just basic human rights. I would just say that I think there's a real problem with um, with the standards that are being set by the government. Government bodies... Um, need to make sure their services are reflective of the broader community. They can't ask aged care to be really culturally sensitive and then kind of as an afterthought bring maybe a a Greek interpreter or say we couldn't make it this time. I know of one organisation that's government funded that is doing a huge survey at the moment and there was no consideration at the beginning for interpreters. Oh. Or, for, or for including people who had experience communicating and setting up some kind of scaffolding for finding out information for people with cognitive disabilities. And remember the stats, one third non-English speaking, yeah. 70% cognitive disability. And these people are still running assessment processes that they know can only be completed by proxy or they know are going to exclude a huge number. That's why they're just going to keep finding out the same things from these surveys because they're only asking the same small group of people. Oh, that's so frustrating. I mean, I'm just thinking about surveys in some companies that were organised, you know, that I was shook my head at because I thought you're going to get, you're going to get the answer you want. Um, I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering um, what, we need to do then going forward on a day-to-day level for start like talk about staff now you, know, you, you yeah. haven't got your consist- consistent assignment um you haven't got the government that's you know giving you the tools you need yeah. what about people that are on the floor what what do you think they can do to bridge this gap 
I think that's a great question. I think the last thing we need is staff training until those core systemic issues are cleared up. I think every one of our electronic care plan systems need to link to cultural diversity and ageing resources. So imagine you get a drop-down list in a care plan and you put this woman's Greek, immediately that sends a link to all the language cards and all wow. the cultural resources. This stuff needs to be in bit and a message needs to go to government. You can't visit this home without a Greek interpreter now. You can't yeah. visit this without a Nepalese interpreter or, you know, this stuff needs to be built in the system so we don't victim blame our staff by saying, oh, let's treat them to be culturally sensitive. No, let's get a system in place where it's woven throughout the system, not as an add-on. And that's my final word is when I first met cultural diversity in 2012, I went to talk about cultural food. And you know what Tanina from Cultural Diversity and Ageing said to me? Food isn't a cultural issue. If someone's complaining about the food, it's a food complaint. Mm. Just because she's Italian, it shouldn't be a cultural issue. This is a woman who's unhappy with the crap food here. Food <laughs> is not just only about nourishment. It's not just, a, it's like creates and preserves our identity. That's such a big question, a big can of worms, which we can't open today, Daniela. <laughs> but I'm putting you forward for nominating you for the uh, ministry you're going to be the new Minister of Ageing if it's the last thing I do. Maury, I love your work. And I've I really love loved talking to you too. Oh, One day I hope to meet you in person post-COVID crazy. I think I, COVID's finishing. I've got the date and it finishes in 2042. <laughs> so we will. We will meet. All right. Great talking to you. Hey, Fantastic. I've got to go water the garden. <laughs> you're lucky you've got one. I, I'll show you one day. Hey, Thanks, Maury. <laughs>